Hi, I'm Scott Hamilton, Rockfile, back with another podcast review for your ears, getting back to our James Bond films with the fifth, You Only Live Twice. As a young Bond fan growing up, I always liked this one a lot. Had ninjas, had a gyrocopter that fired rockets, had some beautiful scenery and beautiful women. It was kind of quintessential Bond to me, but watching it now as an adult, it just doesn't rise to the heights of like Thunderball and Goldfinger that are just the quintessential Bond films. Although this movie has certain aspects of it are like, so ingrained in our pop culture knowledge, they have been parodied like uh, Blofeld. <laughs> I mean, that character has been made fun of in so many and parodied in so many different movies and TV shows and whatever. But Donald Pleasance does a great job as we finally, you know, get to see Blofeld with the cat and he's behind things and all that. So you only live twice. Uh, came out in 1967, two months after another production company finished their version of Casino Royale and took that book and turned it into kind of a comedy. And it, it made money that year. I think it uh, it made like $40 million, but um, it's mostly forgotten these days. And then they took the, the actual Casino Royale book and made it into a good Bond film, you know, back turn of this century or whatever. Um, but if you've ever seen the original Casino Royale, David Niven plays 007 and Peter Sellers is in it. And it's just, it's a mess of a movie. It really is. And, and didn't get uh, great reviews, but it did okay because, well, spies were the thing back in 1967. All sorts of spy movies had, now that we were into five James Bond movies and, and arguably that sixth one, um, there were all sorts of other type spy shows on TV, and so it was starting to get a little spy crazy there in the in the mid to late seventies. And watching this movie now, it has everything you want in a James Bond movie. It just when it's over, it's just like okay, well that was that was a good James Bond movie. They built the elaborate set for the volcano where the bad guy. Uh, well, to give you a little bit of the movie, it opens with a science fiction scene of a capsule in orbit around the Earth, and another capsule comes up and swallows it and steals it and leaves a astronaut to die out there in space. It's it, it's played just kind of straight like any James Bond movie, but thinking about it now, it's like, man, <laughs> that's pretty cold-blooded. They just let that guy out in space, cut his air hose, and went on. Um, and so... It, through the course of the movie, it turns out that Spectre is trying to get the United States and Russia to enter into another war. So they're stealing each other's uh, capsules when they're up in space, and, and it gets into a little bit of the politics and, and them talking about, well, it has to be Russia doing this, it has to be the United States doing this, and England's stuck in the middle, of course, because uh, it's a James Bond movie, and that's the fo focus, right? Um and so Bond dies at the beginning. That's another thing that's different about this movie. He's in bed with a girl, and she jumps out and flips the bed up and knocks on the door, and a couple guys come in with machine guns and shoot him up. <laughs> and that's it. Uh, they come in, they pronounce him dead, they have a, a funeral at sea, and they drop his body into the water. But of course, this being a 007 movie, he's not dead, and he gets picked up by a submarine, and he's in his full Navy uniform, and, and he has to go to Japan. Because that's where they've tracked where these uh, these these capsules may have been coming down, and and they they do track other things. They're they're looking into all sorts of things like um, uh, human trafficking, and, and and yeah, but it's all kind of kept 
you know, it's James Bond in the 60s, so it's all kind of kept kind of light. Um, and it was announced during this movie while they were making that this would be Sean Connery's last 007 role, that he would retire. And he does a good job in the movie, but this was the first one directed by Lewis Gilbert, who would come back and do The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. And it just feels a little disjointed. Um, you know, Bond usually does some cool transitions when they go from one place to another, and they kind of toss that out for this movie. Um, there's a scene where he's going to bed with a girl, and it literally, you know, he turns his head, and they're in a car the next morning. You know, it, it's not even a, a nice slow pan from them from the bed to the next morning. It's just, boop, yeah, the, the, that happened last night, and now we're in today. Um, the movie's about two hours long. It was made on a budget of $9 million and went on to gross $111 million back in the day. So that's huge smash. Um, it's funny watching some of the extras. Uh, there has never been a Bond movie. He actually has to become Japanese, and they do a little surgery makeup on him that's okay, and, and he goes to ninja school for a little while. So that's interesting. Um, and it, it that kind of pre-informs scenes from Enter the Dragon and stuff. I mean, really, he goes to this ninja school and they're all practicing and sparring. And um, But anyway, and so he has to kind of infiltrate. And it really, they didn't have to go that far. I mean, because all of a sudden he's just undone and back to normal. Um, this was the first James Bond movie that jettisoned most of the book and kept some of the characters and locations and made up its own story. Roald Dahl was brought on because the original screenwriter could not come back. And he, he's a great short story writer and a great story writer of weird things. But, you know, he was probably a hair out of his element with um, Bond, but did okay. Like I said, it's, it's a fine Bond movie. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just when it's over, it's just like, what did it all amount to? You know, it's a good adventure for Bond. Um, so anyway, they they were looking for locations on a place to house this this complex for the bad guys, and they found these these volcanoes in Japan, and so they had to build a hollow interior of a volcano. It is the largest set ever built. the The property dude went to them and said, "I need a million dollars to do this," and they gave him one million dollars just for the set. That, that was the budget of a lot of movies back then, <laughs> you know, and this had a $9 million budget. They spent $1 million on just the set, and it is spectacular. There's a few scenes where they have to composite, like um, when the ship is coming down and you're looking into it, that's obviously not a real shot because they weren't really at that volcano. But all the scenes from within the volcano are incredible. This set is so realistic and so amazing. They land a real helicopter in the set is how big the set was. It has to come through the hole in the ceiling and land in the set, a, a real helicopter, not a special effect. Um, <laughs> so it's a massive set and there's hundreds of ninjas that when it's time for the climactic battle scene, um, they come in and rope in through the entrance to the hole in the ceiling. And it's, it's a spectacle and it's a lot of action and there's sword play and gunfighting and it is way over the top. And, and it's, it's, it's a perfect, you know, that again is a quintessential set piece. Um, 
the gyrocopter that, that he flies that they put together very quickly and, and it fires rockets and machine guns and stuff. It, it definitely has some of the best James Bond gadgets, setups, scenes, girls, all that kind of stuff. It's just when you're coming off classics like Goldfinger and Thunderball, this was, you know, a half step down, so to speak. Still one of my favorite movies and I enjoyed it more this time than almost ever because I usually, as a, as a young man, kind of got lost when they get into the political stuff with the countries that kind of I kind of tuned out and started thinking about Legos or whatever it was back in the day but like the sumo match where they had 8,000 real extras in there and it was a real sumo match you learn in the extras that that was always a trademark of Bond that they didn't want to fake things that they wanted everything to look like this was a real world that he lived in. And so, like the sumo wrestling match, there's 8,000 fans and real sumo wrestlers and real people cheering, and it's not sound effects and it's not special effects. These days, we would probably CG it, you know, that we'd put a green screen up and have 20 people, and then the rest, 8,000, would be filled in by computers. Um, so it's interesting they went to those lengths. And to build that million-dollar set, it's in. watch the extras. There's a couple hours of extras on the Blu-ray. Um, they're all fascinating. They've gone to great lengths. These are better than the extras that were on the original DVDs. Some of them are the original extras that were on the DVDs. But there's some newer commissioned uh, behind-the-scenes interviews with some of the people who were made the movie or were in the movies. Um, so as I go through this, this uh, James Bond box set, I'm watching a lot of the extras that I've either forgotten about or I've never seen before. And I'm, I'm blown away by the detail and the amount of work that goes into these movies because it's different when you have hundreds of people and $300 million budget for something like Avengers. These were made for under $10 million. Yes, they had big production teams, but it was nothing like what we have today. And James Bond led the revolution on these kind of movies, these bigger than life, these big globe-trotting. You know, it just, we had done these with special effects and stuff in the 40s and 50s and now in the late 60s lead Eon Productions to just create this world. And they continue to do so until till right up to the late 70s, early 80s, and then they started getting heavily into special effects. But uh, doing everything for real makes these movies stand up today. They're a little time capsule of the time. Uh, the cars, there's a few car chases where some interesting Japanese uh, race cars and things like that are in. Um, it's a very interesting movie. Sean Connery does a great job. It's definitely a good Bond film, but it, it's just not up to the standards of Thunderball and, and Goldfinger, which preceded it. And Bond was only away for one movie, or Sean Connery was only away for one movie, and we got George Lazamy on His Majesty's Secret Service, which we'll talk about in my next podcast, and then Bond came back. Um, but he does a great job, and I guess he was worried about getting typecasted, and, and in retrospect, I, he should have stuck with it you know, as long as he could, right? Um, but it's, it's been fun over the decades to have the different Bonds, and Connery's still one of my favorites. And people kind of pick on him uh, and the character for being sexist or whatever, but this is 1967, and you have to take it as a product of what it is. When you watch movies like this, it was a different time, a different earth, different people, that kind of thing. And uh, all in all, it was an entertaining flick, just not quite as good as Goldfinger, but still, you got to watch it for ninjas and the gyrocopter and the giant sets, and it 
it's just in it, it, it's bond to the ten. It was the biggest budget they'd had for a bond yet, and they would continue to spend more money and 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 do well with these. This one declined a little bit in the box office over the last one, but again, you had that Casino Royale comedy that came out two months before this. Plus, there were other things. Uh, I think the Flint movies have started by then. Uh, there were a bunch of TV shows that were getting into spy stuff, and so there was a little bit of of spy fatigue, kind of as our superhero fatigue we're having these days. But all in all, if you haven't seen it in a while, uh, You Only Live Twice is definitely uh, one of the good James Bond movies. It's 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 right up there with the quintessential ones you have to have, and you've got to see Donald Pleasance playing uh, Blofeld. He's great. I'm Scott Hamilton. I'm Rock Files. We continue to go through the 007 box set I got years ago and rewatch these movies. They have been uh, remastered in 4K back. These are over 10 years old. Um, so they haven't released all these movies in 4K yet, but I'm telling you, they're they're very well done on the Blu-rays that are available now. I'm not sure that 4Ks are 100% required um, unless they do a new master or something. Uh, I would have to see reviews before I would buy or upgrade my James Bond films because so far all of the Blu-rays have looked fantastic. Blown up on an 85-inch uh, 4K HDR TV, upconverted to 4K. Um, very few artifacts, a little bit of grain, but they look fantastic. The movies look great. Uh, definitely products of their era, but they look great. So if you want to pick them up, you don't have to wait for uh, 4K releases. Uh, it's just me. I own the entire... I love James Bond movies, even the bad ones. So, anyway. Uh, check out my website, The Rock File, for links to all my other goodies. Please share and subscribe, and thank you for listening. Thank you.